section four of Broken Barriers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Kurt from Tucson, Arizona. Broken Barriers by Meredith Nicholson. Chapter 4. 1. That Irene and Kemp should embrace and kiss at the table, Grace assumed to be the accepted procedure at such parties. Kissing to the accompaniment of cocktails was not without its piquancy, but the picture presented by Irene and Kemp she found unedifying. Under the stimulus of alcohol, Kemp and Irene seemed to have thrown away the dignity with which they had begun the party. Grace was not without her experience of kissing, but her experiences had been boy and girl transactions, all the sweeter for their privacy. She wondered whether it might not be necessary for Trenton to kiss her, but instead he rebuked Kemp and Irene with mock severity for their unbecoming conduct. You two have no manners. We're terribly embarrassed on this side of the table. Do excuse us, cried Kemp. We were merely carried away by our emotions. I just happened to remember that I hadn't kissed Irene for a week. Well, you needn't pull that caveman stuff here, said Irene petulantly. She opened her vanity box and squinted at herself in the tiny mirror. Pardon everybody while I powder my nose. Word's never been kissed to my knowledge, Grace, said Kemp, apparently undisturbed by Irene's complaint of his roughness. The field's open to you. Oh, we're not going to begin in public, said Grace. Are we, Ward? She turned smilingly toward Trenton, who met her gaze quizzically. I'll say I've never been so tempted before, he answered. Oh, you're bound to come to it, cried Irene. Grace can't pretend she's never been kissed. She's just a little coy, that's all. I'm not coy, Grace protested, but I'm all out of practice. Well, we can easily fix that, said Kemp, jumping to his feet. I'm going to kiss you right now. My sense of hospitality demands it. Not much you're not, cried Irene, forcing him back into his chair. I see you kissing Grace. Jealous, cried Kemp, striking his hands together with delight. Jealous at last. But you needn't be scared, Grace. There's no fun kissing a girl against her will. How do you know it would be against my will, Grace demanded. Well, it would be against mine, said Irene. Ward, why don't you keep Grace interested? I'm not going to have Tommy falling in love with her. We've had some girls out here who played up to Tommy and tried to take him away from me. That's why I brought Grace. She's an old pal of mine, and my little boy's not going to flirt with her. Is you, Tommy? Of course I isn't, Kemp answered, and in proof of his loyalty, he kissed Irene again. The food Jerry was serving called for praise, and the Japanese grinned his appreciation of the compliments they bestowed upon his cooking. Kemp carved the turkey. He always did his own carving. It gave the home touch, he explained. Irene said she would make the salad dressing, and that would be another home touch. The essentials were placed before her, and she composed the dressing after a recipe Kemp had taught her. 
It was the inspiration of Kemp's pet waiter in a New York club. Kemp talked for some time of waiters he knew, and their genius in the composition of salads. Grace had never before heard food discussed by an epicure. It seemed odd that a busy man should have given so much time and thought to the formulae of the kitchen. Kemp appealed to Trenton for confirmation of his appraisement of the merits of the cooking they had enjoyed together in various parts of the country. Trenton replying in a whimsical fashion, tolerant of his friend's enthusiasm, but letting it be known that as for himself, he was much less fastidious about his food. Kemp paused in his neat, skilled carving of the turkey to deliver a lecture on green turtle soup. One might have thought that the whole progress of civilization depended on settling then and there exactly where green turtle soup attained perfection. Kemp's insistence that the New York Yacht Club was entitled to highest honors in this particular brought from Trenton the remark that he knew a place in Kansas where the mock turtle was preferable to any other liquid food he knew. Heathen, cried Kemp disdainfully. Let's talk of ham and eggs, a brain food superior to the much-boasted pie, Trenton suggested. There's a boarding house in a coal mining town in southern Colorado where a woman sets out the best ham and eggs I ever ate. I ought to know. I ate them three times a day for two months. You're an ostrich. If you don't swear this is the finest turkey you ever ate, I'll tell Jerry to serve you ham and eggs and I'll make you eat them. Grace eyed her champagne glass with the same hesitancy with which she had regarded the cocktail. She had never before seen champagne. From what she had heard and read of it, she knew it to be one of the essentials of the new order of life into which she was being initiated. That's the very last, said Kemp, taking the bottle from the cooler and holding it up for their admiration. Positively the last. Same old joke, exclaimed Irene. Tommy's got enough liquor hid away out here to last 40 years. I've seen the cave he built to keep it in. There's oceans of it. A rotten exaggeration, Kemp rejoined, thrusting the bottle back into the cooler and taking up his glass. I haven't enough to last me twenty. Irene now engaged him in a lively debate as to the merits of the wine. She pretended to a critical knowledge of vintages, and after demanding to see the label expressed serious doubts as to the authenticity of the contents. Kemp challenged her assertions. Apparently, the two found the greatest pleasure in taunting each other. They're off, groaned Trenton. You'd think they hated each other from the way they talk. We'll be dignified, Grace, and keep out of their silly controversies. Between ourselves, I've been exposed to a great deal of champagne, but I can't tell one brand from another. It's terribly dangerous, isn't it? asked Grace, peering into her glass. I took your advice about the cocktail, and I didn't feel it at all. How much may I drink of this? Well, about a quarter of that won't do you any harm, Trenton replied after pondering the matter with exaggerated gravity. It seems to me you're rumming it in just a little by asking my opinion in that tone of voice. One might think I was your father. Oh, you're not nearly old enough for that. But would you be ashamed of me, Grace asked, sipping the wine and holding up the glass each time that he might see that she was not exceeding her allowance? I shouldn't be ashamed of you even if you were my aunt. I was just thinking how singular it is that when a man reaches 40, he wants every girl he meets to think he's only 27. 
Have you noticed that? No, but I'll remember it. I can see you're terribly wise. Have I had enough of this pretty stuff? He inspected her glass carefully and nodded. Just about. If I drank it all, I might be more amusing, she suggested. I might be as lively as Irene. Let me study you first without artificial stimulation. As I have every intention of keeping sober myself, you'll get some little idea of what manner of being I am. A first meeting is important. It's either that or nothing. If we both got tipsy, it would be different. But frankly, I don't like being tipsy. Oh, I don't think I've ever been. Far, far from it. But tonight I have a feeling that it wouldn't be appropriate for me to lose my head. No, she inquired with all the mockery she dared employ. They were interrupted by a question from Kemp, who was now discussing automobiles with Irene. Kemp invited Trenton's support in his defense of the limousine in which they had driven to the shack. The car was not to Irene's liking, and she warned him never to buy another of the same make. Kemp tried to explain why he had not met her wishes in the matter. The car was a product of his hometown, and the manufacturer was a friend, and it was his policy to patronize local industries. Grace thought it ridiculous that Irene should show so much feeling about a matter which was, strictly speaking, none of her concern. The car had seemed to grace a machine of much splendor, and it had borne them speedily and comfortably to the farm. She was unable to understand why her friend was so earnestly denouncing it. Don't let them bother you, said Trenton. They get into a row about cars every time I'm here. Their ignorance is pitiful. Neither one of them knows a thing about it. Who doesn't know anything about cars, demanded Irene testily. Ah, I've wakened the enemy's pickets, laughed Trenton. You two ought to remember that just six weeks ago tonight you threshed out the whole business. You ought to know by this time, Irene, that Tommy is as obstinate as a mule. He'd be sure to buy the very car you warned him against. Oh, I knew all the time that's what he'd do. Of course, I don't have to be satisfied, but I'd rather ride in a jitney, Irene rejoins scornfully. Knowing your aristocratic taste, I don't see you, said Kemp, turning to the others. We are not really fussing today. It's just a little sketch we're putting on. Irene and I never quarrel. I just lead her on for the joy of seeing how ignorant she is about the things she spouts about the loudest. The talk now shifted to the theater. It appearing that Kemp in his business trips to New York found time to cultivate the acquaintance of many actors and actresses. Irene had met some of them both in New York, where she seemed to have encountered Kemp on her buying excursions for Shipley's, and at home, where Kemp always threw a party for his particular admirations among theatrical people when they visited Indianapolis. Apparently, these parties have been very gay from the manner in which Irene and Kemp referred to them. They recounted with particular delight an occasion on which the star of a musical comedy had with the greatest difficulty been put into condition to resume his itinerary after a Saturday night at the shack. Irene was moved to immoderate laughter at the recollection. When he gets a bun, he's ever so much funnier off the stage than he ever is on. He climbed out of a window when we were trying to get him in shape to go to his train. And would you believe it? We found him in the barnyard talking to a pig. Then he cried to take the little brown piggy with him. He said he wanted it for his understudy. 
He was perfectly screaming about that silly little pig, and we fooled around so long he missed the last possible train. And Tommy had to drive him clear to Chicago for a Sunday night opening. He kept saying every time we told him he had missed another train that he would wait till it came back. He couldn't beat that. Grace and Trenton were laughing more at Irene's enjoyment of her own story than at the incident itself. They learned that the comedian had finally been landed at the stage door of the Chicago theater where he was to appear barely in time to dress for his part. Kemp was enthusiastic about the drive, which had broken all records. He interrupted Irene's story with many details of the flight, which she had forgotten. When Irene and Kemp again became absorbed in each other, Grace picked up the thread of her talk with Trenton. We stopped just where it was growing interesting, she remarked. Let's go right on where we left off. You were saying you thought it better not to lose your head tonight. Was that on my account? Am I such a young innocent that you've got to take care of me? He laughed at the eagerness with which she flung these sentences at him. If she was affected by her restricted potations, there was nothing in her manner or speech to indicate the fact. Her eyes were bright but only from the excitement of her entrance upon a new field of adventure. Once a young student at the university had addressed some verses to her questing eyes and published them in one of the college periodicals. The poem had been instantly recognized as a tribute to Grace Durland. Questing was a fitting term for a certain look that came into her eyes at times, when her habitual eager gaze became crossed oddly with a faraway look of reverie. Trenton was doing full justice to her eyes and was mindful of their swift changes. On the whole, I don't really believe you need protecting, he answered. Oh, just a little, perhaps. But I think I'd trust you to take care of yourself. But what if I don't want to be taken care of? What if I want to jump into the water with a big splash? Uh, so that's the idea. Well, I think you'd swim out, and yet again you mightn't. There are those who don't, he ended gravely. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything, she said with a defiant lifting of her head. Dear me, he narrowed his eyes and looked at her sharply. Broadly speaking, it's better not to be afraid of life. Life's got to be lived. He pecked at his salad for a moment and put down his fork and went on. We've got to meet situations, play the game with the cards as they're dealt. We hear a good deal these days about our grand old grandfathers and what heroic stuff they were made of. They fought with savages who didn't have the right ammunition to fight back with. But nowadays, the savages are inside of us. The wild streak in man is showing itself. It's in all of us. He touched his breast lightly and smiled to minimize the seriousness of what he was saying. Right around here, where the corn grows tall, you might think, and probably a lot of people back yonder in the city like to think, that everything's safe and it's easy to be good. We're all being tested all the time. The man who was an angel 50 years ago would probably be a perfect devil these days if he had half a chance. The world is a different place every morning, but that's only an old habit the world has. It keeps spinning a little faster all the time. Now we've got right here, with a slight movement of the head, he indicated Kemp and Irene. We've got a situation that wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago, or at least not in a town like this. 
but we may be sure something of the kind was going on, only it was better hidden. Nowadays, with more people and more wealth and the general craving for excitement, things happen differently. We may regret such things, you and I, but we are not helping matters by denying they exist. Everybody is restless. People are living as though they expected to die tomorrow and are afraid they're going to miss something. But I don't believe people are wickeder than they used to be. What we used to call wicked, we call naughty now and pretend it doesn't matter. He spoke half-questioningly, as though not sure of her assent. I suppose that's so, she replied soberly. I never thought of it in that way. But, she added, you must have lots of other responsibilities, more important ones without troubling about me. We're not much use in the world if we haven't a few. I think I, think I might put you on my list. How would you like that? It would be wonderful if you thought me worth thinking about after we leave here, she answered, her eyes bright. If I never saw you again, I shouldn't forget you. You're a vivid person. I can honestly say that you're the most interesting person I've met in a long time. They were interrupted by Irene and Kemp, who rose suddenly from the table. Tommy and I are going to dance, said Irene. You two can have your coffee where you like. There's a cordial if you want it. Tommy has everything, you know. She rested her hand for a moment on Trenton's shoulder. Her face was flushed and her voice a little strident. You two are spooning beautifully. You may be awfully proud of yourself, Grace. I never saw Ward so interested in any girl before. Run along, Irene. Grace and I are talking of serious matters, Trenton replied. Listen to that, Tommy. These idiots are serious. It'll never do to leave them here. Kemp caught Trenton by the arm and dragged him from his chair. Can't be serious in my house, Ward Trenton. Always too serious for Irene and me. Just look at that beautiful girl I got you to play with. Silly to be serious with a girl like that. All right, we'll dance then, said Trenton amiably. That's the talk. Don't forget this is a party, not a funeral. Jerry had rolled back the rugs and pushed the furniture out of the way in the living room. Kemp and Irene were already on the floor, dancing exaggeratedly to the air of one of the new records. I'm not up to date on the new stuff, remarked Trenton apologetically, but Grace found that he danced well, and evidently with enjoyment. You two not drinking enough, said Kemp in one of the pauses, planting himself waveringly before Trenton and Grace and extending a glass. Gotta drink more. Party's no good without wine. Lots of wine. Want everybody to get soused like me. 2. Grace's experience of drunkenness had been limited to the occasional sight of a tipsy man in the street, and she was shocked by the unhappy change in Kemp's appearance. His suave courtesy had disappeared. His hair was in disorder. Irene had rumpled it before they left the table, saying that he was too pretty. And as he talked, his head moved queerly in time with his jerky articulation, and he looked old. One might have thought that age as a punishment for his intemperance had snatched away his youthful mask. Finding that Grace and Trenton paid no heed to his demand that they drink more wine, he followed them over the floor and finally arrested them while he apologized elaborately for neglecting Grace. She was his guest, and it was time that he was dancing with her. Irene rose from the couch where she had been watching them and announced her determination to teach Trenton a new step. His manner of dancing was all out of date, she said. She flung her arms around his neck 
and with her head on his shoulder pushed him about while Kemp, delighted at Trenton's discomfiture, clapped his hands in time to the music. Grace, finding herself free, seized the moment to try to escape. But Kemp lunged to the door and intercepted her. Running away from me? Awful bad manners run away from host. Gotta dance with me like Irene. That's right. Grace, good little sport. Irene's friends, all good sports. He caught her arms and clasped them about his neck. But as his muddled senses were unequal to responding to the rhythm of the music, the performance resolved itself chiefly into an attempt on Grace's part to keep him on his feet. Sorry I stepped on you. Awful sorry, Grace. Wouldn't step on you for anything in this wide, wide world. Oh, it was great fun, Grace cried when the record had played itself out. She was determined to make the best of it, but Trenton, mopping his brow, intervened. Tommy, you're too rough. Grace doesn't want to dance anymore. We're going to have our coffee. You go and dance with Irene. Poor sport, awful poor sport, Camp retorted as Trenton led Grace away. He bawled after them his conviction that they were both poor sports and resumed dancing with Irene. Jerry had placed the coffee tray in a long, comfortably furnished sun porch opening off the dining room, where the music and the voices from the living room penetrated only feebly. I think I'm going to like this better, said Grace with a sigh of relief. A little calm is agreeable after a rough house, said Trenton, watching her intently as she seated herself by the table and filled the cups. Tommy never knows his limit, he went on, taking a cigarette from a silver box on the stand. He can't carry this stuff as he used to, and he doesn't act pretty when he's shot. But he recovers quickly. He'll be all right soon. Irene knows how to manage him. One lump, thank you. Grace was still breathing deeply from the violence of her romp with Kemp. She was hoping that Trenton would renew the talk she had been enjoying at the table, but his silence was disconcerting. She wondered whether he was not purposely waiting for her to speak to show her reaction to the scenes in which they had been participating in the living room. She turned to him presently with a slight smile on her lips. You can see that I'm a terrible greenhorn. I don't know how to act at a party. Not this kind of a party. I suppose it isn't nice of us to run away, but you were an angel to come to the rescue. It's always pleasant to be called an angel, he remarked. It hasn't happened to me for some time. Tommy would die of chagrin if he knew he'd been making a monkey of himself, but he's likely to do most anything when he gets a bun. Jerry came in to inspect the wick of the coffee lamp, and Trenton detained him. Oh, Jerry, you needn't serve any more drinks. Mr. Kemp doesn't need any more. Yezza, the boy bowed imperturbably and withdrew. Jerry and I understand each other perfectly. He'll take care of that. I wonder what the boy thinks, but you never can penetrate the innermost recesses of the Oriental mind. He probably doesn't approve of Tommy's parties, if we knew the truth. I suppose he's used to them. Let me see, what were we talking about? We hadn't settled anything. We were going around in a circle. Then let's keep revolving. I want to hear you talk some more. I want to know your ideas about everything. Oh, that's a large order, he laughed, but I'll do my best. She was struck suddenly with a fear that he might be finding her company irksome. 
It was quite likely that at other times, when he had been provided with a companion familiar with the technique of such parties, he had contributed more to the gaiety of the occasions. But her imagination was unequal to the task of visualizing him in such antics as Kemp was engaged in. He impressed her more and more as she studied him as a man who kept himself in perfect control, who found indeed a secret enjoyment in merely looking on when others were bent upon making an exhibition of themselves. We were speaking a while ago of our naughtiness in accepting an invitation to a function like this. I have attended a lot of such parties here and elsewhere. I am always wondering why I am invited and why I go. Perhaps, he smiled quizzically, It's to give moral tone. That's undoubtedly why you were invited. That excuse won't do for me, she replied quickly. I wanted to come. I was perfectly crazy to come. Well, it's just as well to satisfy your curiosity. I assure you these parties are all alike. I've taken a hand in them in every part of the world. The only thing that makes this one different is, he smiled broadly and his eyes danced with humor, is you. I might say that you are quite different. You create an atmosphere quite your own. Hurry up and explain that, she clasped her hands in mock appeal. I might be different and still very unsatisfactory. Yes, there is that possibility, he answered musingly. A girl requires a little practice to catch the stroke. That is, she has got to get over the first shock before she becomes a good party girl. You're a novice. It will be interesting to know just how you emerge from the novitiate. Would you be interested in that, really? Vastly. Her attention wavered, and with a quick lifting of the head, she bent a startled, questioning look upon him. The new records of distinguished operatic stars which Kemp and Irene had been playing had served as a faint accompaniment to their talk, but the music and the sound of voices were no longer audible in the sun porch. Grace glanced nervously about oppressed by the silence. Voices and steps were heard in the rooms above. Trenton asked if she had read a novel which he took from the lower shelf of the stand that held the coffee things. Her negative reply was almost hostile, and she did not meet his gaze. Her face wore a look of cold detachment. It seemed to him that the girl was no longer there, that what he saw was merely a shadowy shape that might pass utterly at any moment. He rose and dropped his half-smoked cigarette into an ashtray on the stand. When he faced her again, the look had changed. He interpreted it as an appeal, and he was not unmindful of its poignancy. She sat erect, her head lifted, her hands clasped upon her knees. I was just wondering, she began. Oh, Tommy and Irene? They're about somewhere, he said carelessly. He reached for a fresh cigarette eyed it as though it were an unfamiliar thing, and lighted it deliberately. That look in her face, the appeal in her eyes, had struck deep into him. He sat down beside her on the Davenport, crossed his knees, and folded his arms. His composure restored her confidence. In a moment, she settled back, quite herself again. He touched rapidly upon a great number of problems, talking well with an animation that surprised her but she knew that he was trying to make her forget her perturbation of a moment ago. It was an enormous satisfaction to know that he understood. It was almost uncanny that he understood so much of what was in her mind and heart without being told. If it isn't impudent for me to ask, I'd like to know just what you're aiming at, he said. You look like a girl who might be cursed with ambitions, 
Can't you let me into the secret? Oh, honestly, I haven't any. When I was at the university, I thought I had some, but they were silly. Like every other girl, I was crazy for a while to be a trained nurse and then a settlement worker, and I even thought I might be a writer, and for about a week I had a craze to study medicine. Then I had to leave college, so I took a job in a department store. How's that for ambition? A little mixed, but the books are not closed yet. There's plenty of time for fresh entries. There's marriage. You've overlooked that. That must be on the program. It's not the first number. College girls who don't get married the day after commencement are likely to wait a while. I'm not a bit excited about getting married. I want to look the world over before I settle down. Suppose you fell in love. Some fine fellow who could take good care of you. What then? Well, I've had chances to marry and I couldn't see it. I've never been in love. Not really. There's a professor who wanted to marry me. A widower with two children. You wouldn't have me do that. And young fellows, several of them, very nice, who caused me a lot of bother before I got rid of them. I liked them all, but I couldn't love them. Then I'll make the prediction that always applies in such cases. Someday you'll meet just the right man, and that will be the end of it. Maybe, but I don't see it now. All I want, all I want right now is to be free, she said, and a faraway look came into the dark eyes. One can be free and terribly lonesome too, he suggested. There's nothing quite so horrible as being lonesome. This is a big world, and just knocking around by yourself isn't much good. We all need companionship. The soul cries for it. She glanced at him quickly, surprised at his sudden seriousness and the note of depression in his voice. In her great liking for him, she groped for an explanation of his change of mood. He had not struck her as at all a moody person. Some reply seemed necessary, and she was at a loss to know what to say to him. But you're a success, she exclaimed. It's only when a man fails that he's likely to be lonesome. Success is a beautiful word, but to myself, I'm a decided failure. I've failed in the most important thing a man ever undertakes. Don't look at me like that. I'll explain. I'm supposed to be a mechanical expert, but there's one mechanism that's beyond me. I'm referring to the heart of a woman. My ignorance of that contrivance is complete. The grim look that had come into his face yielded to a smile as he saw her bewilderment. You're going to be bored in a minute. I didn't want you to think me more than 27, and you're already guessing that I'm at least 70 and a doddering wreck. I wasn't thinking that at all. You seemed unhappy, and I was sorry. Well, don't be sorry for me. I'm not deserving of anyone's pity, not even my own. When I spoke of failure, I was thinking of my marriage. Irene probably told you that I married? Oh, yes. I asked her the first thing. And it made no difference to you about coming, I mean? None whatever, she laughed. I just thought of it as an experience. Rather like studying a bug under glass, is that it? Yes, something of the sort, but you were speaking of your wife. Well, he said with a smile, my being married is not a confidential matter, nothing to hide or be ashamed of. My wife is a very charming woman. You'd probably fall into her spell if you knew her. People frequently do, and I think she'd probably like you. Not if she knew I had met you at a party like this. Bless you, that wouldn't make a particle of difference in her liking you or not liking you. 
She's broad-minded, very much so. And it's one of her many good points that she isn't jealous. If she came in here and found me talking to you, she wouldn't scream and break up the furniture. She'd join in the conversation and make herself interesting. Say startling things just to make us sit up. After a fashion, she's a philosopher, very much entertained by what the world's doing. She sees in me only one of the many millions, a queer specimen for the microscope. She actually puts me into the books she writes. Grace bent her head, lifted it quickly, and exclaimed, Is she Mary Graham Trenton? I've read her clues to a new social order, but I never imagined. No, you wouldn't connect me with anything so daring. I need hardly repeat that she's a broad-minded woman. I'd be interested to know how you come to know about that book. Oh, that's easy. We had a lecture on it in our sociology course at the university. The head of the department didn't approve of Mrs. Trenton's views and warned us against the book, so of course I read it. Naturally. But it's interesting, awfully interesting. Written, I assure you, laughed Trenton, by a remarkable woman. 3. The unhappy marriages of which Grace had known had failed for obvious reasons, but Trenton's case was fascinating in its subtleties. He spoke of his wife as a man might speak of a woman he admired in a detached sort of way, without really knowing her. In spite of his amiable attitude towards Mrs. Trenton, Grace found herself instantly his partisan. She was sure his failure, as he called it, was his wife's fault. She greatly disliked this woman she had never seen. She started and flushed when he said abruptly, almost as though he had read her thoughts, You're getting ready to pity me, but don't do it. It's something in me that's wrong. We don't quarrel and throw dishes across the table or call each other names. We respect each other tremendously. It isn't even one of these triangular affairs, another man or woman. When we meet now and then, we talk quite sanely and sensibly of the news of the day and the arts and sciences, as two strangers might talk in a smoking car. The trouble may lie right there. A man and wife must be necessary to each other to make a perfect marriage, and we're not. For seven or eight years, we've mostly gone our separate ways. She has her own interests, plenty of them. If I tell her I'm going to Hong Kong to do a job and ask her to go along, She'll say she doesn't think it would amuse her. She'll go to Paris and stay till I come back. All cheerful, you understand, no row. But Mrs. Trenton's quite able to do as she pleases, as to money, I mean, independently of me. And she knows people everywhere, and they like to have her around. I like having her around myself. Perhaps one of these days everything will come right, said Grace. Possibly, he said, but that's enough of me. Let's talk about you a little. He drew her out as to her experiences at the university, but when these were exhausted, he told her something of his own history. He'd been thrown upon the world at an early age, and not without difficulty, had worked his way through technical school. His profession had carried him to every part of the world. He told amusing stories of the reaction of remote foreign peoples to the magic of modern machinery. No other man had ever interested Grace half so much. Trenton was like a pilgrim from another and larger world. She was fascinated by the cosmopolitan fashion in which he changed the scene of his adventures from China to South Africa and from South America to far-flung islands whose very names were touched with the glamour of romance. Some of his journeys had been merely pleasure excursions. 
He got restless sometimes, he said, and had to go somewhere. But chiefly, he had traveled to sell or to install machinery, or to work out mechanical problems under new and difficult conditions. There was no conceit in him. A vein of self-mockery ran through most of his talk. He made light of the perplexities and dangers he had encountered. There was no fun, he said, in the performance of easy tasks. He knew usually when he was employed that his services were sought in the hope that he might be able to solve riddles which other very capable persons had given up. Grace studied him at leisure through his desultory monologue, interrupting only to ask questions to keep him assured of her interest. Her mind turned back repeatedly to what he had said of his wife. She was quite sure that Mrs. Trenton didn't appreciate her husband's fine qualities. He was a man of genius and as such probably wasn't always easy to understand. But it was Mrs. Trenton's business, the girl reflected, to learn to understand him, to seek ways of making him happy. She was more and more struck by his seeming indifference to most things, even to his own achievements. Her imagination played upon him with girlish romanticism. He ought to be aroused, awakened. He deserved to be loved, to have the companionship he craved. And yet, from the manner in which he spoke of his wife, it was a serious question whether he didn't love her. Whether the unknown woman loved him was another question that kept thrusting itself into her thoughts. As he rambled on through the hour they were alone, he played fitfully with the end of a gold locket which he carried on his watch chain. He would draw this from his right-hand waistcoat pocket, seemingly unconscious of what he was doing, and hold it in his hand or smooth it caressingly. She speculated as to whether it did not contain a picture of Mrs. Trenton. She even considered asking him to let her see it. Again, steps and voices were heard above, and Trenton looked at his watch. It's 11 o'clock, and Tommy and I are taking the midnight train for St. Louis, he said. We've got to beat it. She rose and stood beside him, sorry that the evening was so nearly over. I'll always remember tonight. You've been awfully nice to me, she said. Please don't. If you begin thanking me, I'll know you feel I'm older than the hills. I see it all now. I made my story cover too many years. Oh, that's not it at all, she protested. I was just wondering how you ever crowded so much into your young life. You do that sort of thing very prettily, and when you look at me like that, you become dangerous. You really don't think I'm dangerous, not in the least little bit. I'm not to be caught in that trap. A wise man never acknowledges to a woman that she's dangerous. They ought to have taught you that at the university. But you're patient. You've listened to me, as Desdemona listened to Othello. I believe, she said daringly, tilting her head, I believe I'd like to flirt with you. Oh, just a little bit. He took a step nearer, his hands thrust into his pockets in his characteristic way. He drew them out and they fell to his side as he regarded her fixedly with a smile on his lips. Then, very gently, he took her cheeks between his hands. She thrilled at the touch, her fine, strong hands. She had noted repeatedly all through the evening how finely formed they were and the strength implied in them. It's meant very much to me to meet you. You can't know how much. I almost feel that I know you a little bit. It's meant so much more to me, she returned sincerely. I'd be ashamed if I wasn't grateful. And that doesn't mean at all that I feel that you're a day older than I am. 
They were smiling gravely into each other's eyes. There was not for the moment at least any question of a disparity of years. She drew away slowly until her face was free of his touch. Then she laid her hands lightly on his shoulders. Please kiss me, she whispered, and their lips met. Here, you two. They swung around to find Kemp in the door, watch in hand. We've just got time to make it. Your bag is at the station, Ward? All right, go up and get your things, Grace, and tell Irene to hurry. Kemp was again the man of business, his preoccupation with the journey already showing in his eyes. Irene was giving the last touches to her hair when Grace found her. Ready in just a minute, she said. How did you get on with good old Ward? He's perfectly lovely. He's the most interesting man I ever met. That's what they all say. Have any luck vamping him? Of course not, replied Grace, putting on her hat. You couldn't expect me to make a hit with a man like that. He's too big and much too wise. Oh, the wiser they are, the harder they fall, replied Irene carelessly. It's something that he didn't leave you and go out for a walk all by his lonesome. That's the way he treated a girl I wished on him once. Actually, my dear, walked out of the house and didn't come back till Tommy and I were ready to go. But she got soused, the little fool. I guess I was lit up for a little while tonight, and Tommy certainly was feeling his poison when Jerry put the wine away. He's all right now. It hits him quick, and then it's all over. Jerry appeared to bow them ceremoniously into the car. On the way into town, they talked only fitfully. When the men spoke, it was to discuss the business that was calling them to St. Louis. I'm going to Minnie Lawton's for the night, Grace, said Irene. You'd better stop there with me. It's easier doing that than explaining things at home. There won't be time for you to stop at Minnie's to change your things. Grace had considered the possible embarrassment that might result from going home at midnight in the new gown. She meant to explain that she had changed before leaving the store and had gone home with Irene after the French lesson and some of Irene's friends had dropped in. Don't take a chance of being scolded, remarked Kemp. You know your family and I suppose you have some leeway. I'd hate for you to get into trouble. Oh, I'll fix everything all right. It isn't so awfully late. I'll be home by twelve. They dropped Irene at Minnie's and then swung westward. Grace indicated a point a block from home where they might leave her. If you like the shack, I hope you'll come again, said Kemp. It's been fine to have you along. We'll meet again, said Trenton. We didn't settle much. There'll have to be some more talks. Many of them, I hope. I hope so, too. Thank you both ever so much. When she reached the Durland Gate, she caught a last glimpse of the taillight as the car swung southward round the park. End of section four.